Welcome to Failing Forward. Today we're here with Esther Watts, who's going to be talking about how to make your staff more gender equitable. Esther, can you please introduce yourself for the audience today? Hello, everyone. My name is Esther, and I'm the Senior Director with the Gender Justice Team, um, focusing on kind of country office gender transformation. Esther, tell us a little bit about the context of the story you're going to talk about today. So prior to my current role, I was with Care Ethiopia for pretty much 11 going on 12 years. And I started out in the program quality unit and then became program director or ACD programs for six years. And then following that was um, country director for six years. And um, we started on a journey back in 2010 when I first arrived looking at moving from a project-based approach to a program-based approach and one of the big things that we were focusing on in our programming was um, changes in social norms and values that were creating barriers to women's empowerment and um, I was at the time the program quality um, person but moved fairly quickly into being the program director and at that time CARE globally collected data on staffing ratios between men and women. And I was looking at the staffing ratios for Ethiopia, and we were the worst globally amongst all of the country offices that CARE worked in. I think currently that was about 92 country offices. And we were worse than some of the country offices that for me, where I'd worked before in Afghanistan and Bangladesh and Pakistan, I expected to be worse than Ethiopia and was surprised to see that Ethiopia was really at the bottom and we were at 23% at the time and um, looking at it I kind of couldn't understand that this wasn't having an impact on our programming impact. If we wanted to work in social norms change and we only had 23% female staff surely this would have um, a negative or a constricting um, ability for us to achieve maximum impact in our social norms work. Um, so that's the background. Myself and the then country director sat down and kind of discussed this and uh, made a decision as to what it was um, or make a plan for how we could start addressing this and look at ways in which we could try and increase our female staffing ratios. So that's the kind of background. And give us a sense of the scale of that. What size staff were you talking about and spread over how many offices? The Care Ethiopia, I believe, is one of the largest country programs that Care has. Uh, I think at the time maybe it was about 800 staff. Currently we're over 1,000 and um, across, I believe at the time, five or six field offices, some in quite remote locations that um, even now it's very, very hard to recruit female staff due to the context, the climate and um, yeah, patriarchal norms in those cultures. Talk a little bit about why this was true. You said, you know, you could hardly believe that Ethiopia was the worst given all of the places in the world uh, where we operate why, what were some of those underlying factors that were leading to such a low ratio? I think fundamentally, Ethiopia is a very patriarchal society, um, similar to many other cultures and societies where we're working. And 
I think the same as other areas or barriers, unless it's challenged, the status quo continues. And I think when there is a narrative that it's there's a population group, whatever the population group may be, it's hard to recruit them. That narrative kind of gets embedded into your thinking as an organisation, your HR systems, um, your practices, your thinking, and um, it doesn't necessarily get challenged because everybody assumes that that's just the way it is. And unless it's challenged, and there is concerted effort to address it, I think that that status quo remains. So you talked about this, you saw the data, you and other folks on your team thought this is a problem, we need to make a plan to address it. What happened next? So I would like to highlight first that it wasn't just us that saw that as a problem, there had been previous um, kind of commitments. So we we weren't, just the first people to sit there and say, okay, now we need to address this. But I think that the fact that we said this could potentially be impacting our program was a very, very strong rationale as to why we needed to make those changes. And so the country director basically tasked me to get a group of our senior female staff that we did have to kind of like brainstorm some ideas on how we might approach increasing our female staffing ratios and one of the first things that we decided to do was have an all-female staff meeting and an organization that I'd worked with previously called Concern when we were looking at um, PSHEA issues and particularly um, issues around HIV and staff wellness uh, we had held an all-female staff meeting and I had found that to be truly transformational in us understanding some of the key issues that um, female staff particularly were facing. So we invested quite a large amount of money in bringing together all of our female staff, no matter who they were, no matter what level they were at, together in a location jointly to kind of start exploring some of these issues, start exploring issues around female leadership, and starting kind of like thinking about how can we jointly uh, start um, look at increasing our female staffing ratios. So that was pretty transformation. And that also, so this was way before the Me Too movement, that was very instrumental in Care Ethiopia identifying some key issues around PSHEA, which is prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. And helping us to identify some of the issues that we wanted to do to address that as well. So as a result of that, we sent a number of staff on training on investigations of cases of um, sexual exploitation and abuse, and we set up systems to investigate and report and and raise awareness amongst all of our staff on um, minimum standards around sexual harassment what was sexual harassment so in this meeting we had a big session on what was sexual harassment and it was really interesting a lot of people were asking questions around 
what does it constitute does this mean we can't date someone in the organization and, and it was a really open space where people were able to really explore some key issues that we felt were barriers to us increasing our female staffing ratios and as a result of that meeting we came up with some very practical ideas that we wanted to take forward and present to the senior leadership team and get approval to move that forward. And one of the key kind of areas that we made a decision around was we wanted to be more of a family friendly organisation. If we wanted more female staff, then we didn't just want we didn't just want um, females. We wanted our male staff and our, our staff members to actually enjoy being in the organisation as part of a wider um, part of their family as well. So some of the things that we introduced was flexible hours with core hours between 10 o'clock and four o'clock. And that meant that people could make decisions as to when they wanted to come to the office and when they needed to leave the office based on their family commitments or other commitments that they may have. We extended at the time the government statutory maternity leave was three months and we extended to four months paid with an additional two months at 50 percent pay um, and uh, part time and also developed an internship program to try and increase the pipeline of female staff coming um, particularly from the rural areas and at that time Ethiopia government had started establishing universities in some of these peri-urban centres and so we made plans to partner with those universities to draw out some of the key kind of um, high-flying graduates that we could then build into a pipeline in some of these locations that were quite difficult to recruit for because there weren't necessarily female staff graduating or graduates that um, were meeting the minimum requirements for the jobs that we had identified. So if we can go back just a minute, you talked a lot about some of the things you did that worked, some of these, um, the internship program, creating safe spaces, creating women only spaces to talk about barriers and obstacles. You also mentioned this wasn't the first time you'd tried. This wasn't the first time the office had looked at this problem and said, let's do something about it. What was different between this time where it worked, not painlessly or perfectly, but it did work, and the time that it did, wasn't able to make progress? Well, I think one of the key things that continued to be an issue was our recruitment practices. And I think that that had been one of the key issues before. So one of the um, incentives that had uh, been introduced was uh, I think sort of lifting up and applauding and encouraging field offices that had recruited female staff and when we looked at it closely one of the key issues wasn't necessarily that um, there weren't women there or females there for recruitment the, the problem was around our recruitment practices. And I don't think that that was something that had been analysed in detail previously as to what were the key barriers around our recruitment practices that were preventing female staff from applying and um, 
moving forward in the recruitment process. You talked about sort of the first part of this journey. What were the different pieces you set up, all the, you know, the safe spaces and the internship programs. As the process went along, what were challenges you encountered as you went or things you had to adapt because they weren't working the way you'd hoped? So one of the key things was pushback. And I think that that's the same with any big change process that you initiate, that there will always be resistance, particularly from those that lose a particular position of privilege or power as a result of that change process. And that was very clear that our male staff um, started voicing strongly that they no longer felt valued in the organisation, that there weren't opportunities for promotion anymore for our male staff and that they felt that care was no longer a place for them. And that was heard very clearly, even though the data was showing that even though we were instigating all of these different initiatives, still our recruitment levels for male staff was higher than female staff. And that was a big piece of learning. It doesn't matter what the data says, or it matters what the data says, but perception is everything. If people perceive that what you're doing is um, unjust, even if the data is stating something else, or unjust, even if the data is stating something else, you need to be dealing with those perception issues, not just with the actual facts as well. And so one thing we instigated was um, a male coaching process. And one thing we were discovering was as we were increasing female staff, our profile as an organisation was changing considerably. Our male staff tended to be 40 and above and our female staff that we were recruiting in tended to be in their mid 20s to late 20s. And so we had this kind of profile change where our female staff were much younger and our male staff were much older. So then looking at what were the opportunities for building on experience and leadership experience that um, our male staff potentially had and helping them to bring that to the table and offer that as a learning opportunity for our female staff. And our female staff tended to be much, much more, or not just the female staff, but the younger staff we were recruiting tended to be much, much more savvy with digital tech, public speaking, presentations. So what could both um, sort of areas of the organisation learn from one another? And one thing we developed was this male coaching sessions. I think we offered 12 sessions for something like 24 male staff that wanted to go through this process. And um, we offered it up and we asked for applicants as a kind of way of supporting our male staff through the change process and supporting them to understand that they were still valued, that there were opportunities for our male staff to grow and develop in the organisation, the same as female staff. It's really interesting what you say about no matter what the data is telling you, the perception also matters. People's experience of what they feel like they're losing also is important. Were there any key things in that coaching session or any key pieces that helped get through that that you'd recommend others implement in similar situations? 
I think the offering, even though we weren't able to address more than maybe, I can't remember whether it was 12 or 24 um, spots on the coaching. I think the value that the organisation had listened to this feedback, that they had developed something specifically for our male staff and that they were willing to invest in that was really important. And the second piece was uh, we developed the curriculum of this coaching with a big piece around providing an opportunity for those staff to comment and verbalize their feelings of frustration around the change process and what it was that they felt they were losing as part of this process. So we were able to work with um, a coaching organization to actually develop the curriculum ourselves with, with a particular focus on that and a particular focus around public speaking and CV development and for them to be coached through those two elements that so that they felt that there was professional development that they were receiving as well. And did you ever have a moment, and I ask because this happens to me, where somebody is in front of you saying there are no more opportunities, men never get promoted anymore, and you just wanted to say, that's really not true, here's what the data is, and was that ever an effective technique? I mean, we put out the data, definitely, but I think this is human nature. No matter what the data is saying, if you're feeling sidelined or devalued, then it's really important for the organisation to listen to those feelings because otherwise you're going to lose a really large proportion of your staff. The morale will go down, people will be demotivated and all everybody is valuable. I think the message is diversity is, is important. I think now if you went and asked our staff, we, we did a learning session about three years ago and one of our male staff was speaking publicly at an event where he owned and identified that at the start of this process, he resented it very strongly. But now he really believes that Care Ethiopia is a much better working environment. It's better for the diversity that it's been brought in, the age diversity, the gender diversity, all of that has added value to being in the workplace. So I think it is really important that we listen to that. And diversity, I think, adds value. When you've got different perspectives, you've got different ideas, and you've got different people coming to the table with different um, backgrounds and different approaches. And if that is handled well, I'm not saying that that's always an easy thing to do. It isn't. I think it creates conflict. But if you can manage that conflict in a really positive way, I think you end up with better ideas, you end up with better processes, and you end up with a better working environment. And I think everybody in Care Ethiopia would say and agree to that. I also think that there is natural attrition, that there will be um, a certain number of people who won't want to work in an environment, particularly during the change process. And as a result, um, I think that you need to be confident in your vision of where you want to go and believe in the process of where you want to go, manage it so that everybody who is feeling negative can be listened to and and made to feel that they are still part of that process 
But if there are people who want to leave or drop off in that process, then I think it's okay to accept that as an organisation or as part of a change process and understand that there will be natural attrition and there will be people who aren't wanting to join in. This is who Care Ethiopia is. This is what we are about. We are part of a wider organisation that is a women's empowerment organisation. There are plenty of international NGOs. You could work for a number of different international NGOs if you don't want to work for an organisation that is prioritising women's empowerment. Then there are a number of other organisations that, that you can work for. But if you want to work for here, then you need to buy into the values and the vision that we have as an organisation and you need to be part of that. So I think that that is something as well is to be courageous in the decisions that you're making and in the vision that you have to be sensitive and gracious to those who are struggling, but also to understand that maybe there's natural attrition and that's OK. And tell us a little bit about where where things are now. So, you know, the story sort of starts in 2010 or the, the piece we talked about. Where are things today, 12 years later? So about Three, four years ago, we were at 42 percent. So as a senior leadership team, we made a commitment that within five years, we wanted to be at 51 percent. And we moved from 23 percent to 42 percent within that five year period. By 2018, we were at 42 percent. I'm not up to date on the exact data now. I'm not sure where they are. But one of the things that has happened is the COVID, is COVID and also conflict um, in Ethiopia, which meant that our portfolio um, pivoted very, very significantly to respond to the humanitarian crisis, and particularly in one geography of the country. And when, when you are recruiting in humanitarian crisis, that often means you're heavily recruiting um, male staff. And I think that that may have skewed the data somewhat. But I, what has happened, which is really exciting, is the commitments around programming and the investment made from an institutional perspective has been remarkable. And one of the, I was involved in um, reviewing a concept note recently from a gender transformative point of view. And it was really exciting to see all of these approaches and methodologies and the thinking around gender and the use of the gender equality framework came out really, really clearly. And that for me was a key learning around the institutionalization of processes. I think in other country offices where I've been working in the last six to eight months, you see individual projects that are designed from a gender transformative perspective, but then there are lots of other projects that aren't and are potentially designed gender blind. Whereas I think in Ethiopia, it's been so institutionalized across the board that whatever project, no matter who the donor is, no matter what the sector is, we're seeing designs that are really gender transformative. And I think that that's where that whole institutionalization process came into being. It wasn't just, we need more female staff. It was we need more female staff. We need greater diversity because this is going to impact our ability to really have gender transformative programming. And I think that the efforts that Care Ethiopia made weren't just programmatic. They were institutional. And as a result, 
of that institutional transformation process. We're seeing designs of programs and implementation of programs that are gender transformative across the board. It's interesting that you talk about the impact of COVID. We've certainly seen that in the world writ large, is that one of the impacts of COVID is to push more women out of the workplace and that fewer women came back. Um, So it's interesting that that comes up in the Ethiopian context as well, that, that the impact of crisis in this instance has been gender regressive, right? It has has moved us backwards. So if you could do it all over again, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? That's a really fascinating question. The start of the process, I wouldn't change. I think we really went at it appropriately from the start. I think I would integrate more male engagement right at the start rather than waiting till that kind of resentment had festered too too quickly um and i think one of the key things that we did when i first became cd was do this whole hr review process to look at our recruitment processes and how we were were um grading our jobs so one of the things that we identified was the way that we graded our jobs was weighted heavily towards experience and education and particularly experience and con- and program managers that understood that were almost manipulating the system to add years of experience to job descriptions so that they could um, increase salaries and attract more experienced individuals. And so one thing we did was review our whole way we graded our job descriptions and to focus particularly around the competencies required to do a particular job rather than the years of experience and levels of education required. And that process I would do very differently now, having gone through it quite Frankly, I'm not sure it would ever take a similar experience on again, but um, I would address that very, very differently, particularly through a change management process. One of the major feedbacks we had was that too many decisions were being taken by senior staff and that if maybe we should have had um, a broader diversity of decision makers in making those decisions. So I think some of the key things around that HR change process, I I would very much do differently if I was to do it again. Using whatever time frame you're most comfortable talking about, I know that you're not in the Ethiopia office now, um, but thinking about what is the biggest challenge you're still facing? Yeah, that would be difficult because I'm not in the country office now. I think you should ask the current country director. But but I think that that still getting right female candidates at the shortlisting phase in a certain time frame can be really challenging. And one of the things that we introduced in the HR manual was that if there isn't a qualified female candidate at shortlisting after the first round of um, applications, then we could re-advertise a second time. And that whole process delays recruitment, which can then, particularly at the start of a project, impact startup. 
And I think that when you particularly you're in a humanitarian crisis, you need to recruit quickly. You don't have that luxury of time. And I think that that can impact very, very much. And also in when you're working in conflict in humanitarian situations, um, there's an issue around safety and security. And that can also impact um, your ability to recruit, I think, uh, anyone not just female staff. So I, I think that time is of the essence in that particular context. So I would imagine that that is something that is significantly challenging at the moment in Ethiopia. And what's one action that you would recommend to other, either people at CARE or other implementers based on this experience? The biggest one would be to have courage. If you see a change process that needs to happen, and at the time, I can remember having a conversation with another CD of a very large international NGO who currently at that time had six Western male staff. And his response to me when I said it, I thought it was crazy that we only had 23% female staff. His response to me was, it's just not possible. It won't happen in Ethiopia. And so my re- encouragement to anyone facing a significant change process that they see needs to happen is to have courage and don't listen to people who say it can't happen because I do believe anything is possible if you have the right team around you, you have the commitment, the passion to go for it. Yeah, definitely have the courage to go for it. Believe your convictions and go, 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 go. <laughs> it is possible. And- Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience today that I didn't give you a chance to talk about? I really believe in diversity. I really believe that it may carry Ethiopia a better place to be. And I hope that we can, in Ethiopia and across the board, increase our diversity, not just um, in diversity of religions, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of able-bodiedness, mental health, all of those areas, I just believe the more diverse a team you have, the better quality work you'll have and the higher levels of impact you'll have. Well, Esther, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to learn more about your experience. And it's definitely something I know we all can apply in various ways about how do we get to more diverse staffs that are more supported uh, across the organization. So thank you so much for your time today.